0: Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, May 25th, 2020. And we're celebrating Memorial Day today, too. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim tells us about Disneyland's Blast to the Past event back in the 1980s. Let's get started by bringing in the man who asks how long someone has to be dead before it's considered archaeology instead of grave robbing. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim,
1: how's it going? Kind of a side tangent of that. Uh, you know, Nancy and I- <laughs> you, have a, you have a grave robbing story, do you, Jim? Sort of. <laughs> sort of. I, well, Nancy and I live on 11 acres on what was previously a dairy farm. We've discovered over time, given the th- the weird things that are coming up out of the ground, like these amazing old bottles of that sort of thing, like this may have been where the dairy farm had its dump that they then covered with soil and then dropped a house on top of. So it's, it's, Very slow archaeology, and you don't have to dig. Just after every winter, something rises up out of the ground. And as long as it's not a dead person or a cow, I'm good. John Deere tractor. Yeah, yeah. It it makes winter all that more exciting, Jim. It does, it does. But we have a a wonderful collection of weird little old-fashioned bottles that the ground gives up every so often. I'm thinking
0: garage sale. Good point. All right, Jim, let's do a shout-out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Jim, five weeks in a row with a record number of Bandcamp subscribers. Unbelievable, and thank you all so much. Uh, we're gonna have to do something special for these folks when the parks reopen, don't you think? I agree, I agree. Aaron has some ideas. I don't know if he shared them with you yet, but uh, but they sound great. Okay, yep. Thanks to new subscribers, Lorvis, S-M-B-L-E-J, and Peculiar Mademoiselle, and longtime subscribers Sal M, Brian G, our good friend Billy over at cruisehabit.com, and Josh Q. Jim, these folks were interns to inventor Wayne Zelinsky. At the Imagination Institute in Epcot, one night when they were trying to figure out how to put a large frozen pepperoni pizza in the lab's tiny toaster oven, the shrinking machine was invented. And then when they realized they were all still hungry an hour later, the growth machine was invented later
1: that night. True story, Jim. I do not know if you have been watching Prop Culture. Oh, yeah. I've watched... So we watched the Mary Poppins one mm-hmm. and the Pirates of the Caribbean one. Okay, you got to check out the Honey, I Shrunk the, the Kids thing because Dan Lanigan, the host, actually unearths the original shrinking machine from the film and restores it. <laughs> to working order? Yeah. <laughs> to working order? <laughs> <laughs> well, close. But he gets Rick Moranis on camera. And oh, sweet. Yeah, Rick stepped away from. The spotlight to raise his kids after his wife passed away from cancer in the in the nineties, right. and he's coming back to the franchise. Josh Gad has a project called Shrunk that he's doing, where basically he plays Wayne Zelensky's oh. now grown son, and he's oh. dabbling in with the shrink ray. And Rick's going to come back and play his dad. Oh, that's fantastic! That's a great idea. Yeah.
0: So. Oh, wonderful! By the way, I was watching the uh, the Mary Poppins one, and uh, who was the costume designer that was married to? Julie Andrews. Oh, Tony Walton. Tony Walton. So they did an outside shot of Dan walking into mm-hmm. uh, his apartment. Mm-hmm. It's down the street from my apartment in New York. Oof. Walked by it yesterday. Woof. Okay. Yeah. So so now I have to I have to start keeping my eyes peeled now for people I see on the street.
1: <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, Tony Walton needs to double lock his doors. <laughs> 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 I you had Dizzy to memorabilia here in the apartment. <laughs> I don't know where it went. <laughs> Some man scampering away. <laughs> all right, Jim, let's uh, let's do the
0: news. Disney Springs opened on May 20th. That's Wednesday. It was yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday. It seemed to go pretty well. Not very crowded. Mm-hmm. Lots of signs up saying, here are the procedures and things like that. But uh, all in all, it seemed like it was relatively uneventful. And that's the way we like it. Exactly. Uneventful is what we want, folks. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uneventful is what we want. By the way, did you see the picture Of the Woman Grilling Hot Dogs.
1: Yeah. (laughs) All
0: right. So so here's some background for our listeners. Okay. It it came out later in the day on Wednesday. So uh, things went reasonably well at Disney Springs yesterday. People wore masks. They followed the social distancing guidelines. They had their food. They walked around. All in all, a good time. Mm -hmm. Then there surfaced on social media Wednesday night this photo of a woman with her family mm. and she had taken a table over by Cooks of Dublin over by Regland Road and had gotten like a small hibachi that she had brought herself and was grilling her own hot dogs on the table in front of cooks and <laughs> not making this up the image on social media showed Disney security looking at her half in fascination and, and half in horror like the fascination was you know what's going through their mind. What's going through their mind was of all of the things that they prepared us for, for the opening of <laughs> reopening of Disney Springs, having people bring their own barbecues was not one of them. So she didn't have a mask on. Mm-hmm. She didn't have, uh, none of her family had her mask on. You know there was a whole thing about liberty and justice mm-hmm. and, and freedom and stuff like that that was being discussed. And the security people were looking at her like, is this really what you want to
1: do today? Is this the thing that you want to do today with this? It was, uh, I don't, but I don't know how it ended up. No, no, the same thing here. I put in inquiries and from Disney side of the fence, remember the gentleman who kept showing up on Disney property with, Oh, with the banners. Yeah. And it's just sort of like, it's like, look, This isn't a political space, all right? You know, people are here to vacation of of all beliefs and cultures, and it's just so But if it's not a political statement, why do you bring your own barbecue and food to Ragland Road? It doesn't make any sense. What concerns me is this woman has thrown down the gauntlet. What other food preparation, we, you know, will we see inside of the park soon? It's like <laughs> deep fryer. <laughs> yeah, the thing, excuse me, ma'am. What exactly is that in your stroller? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Just a quick note to all of our uh, friends
0: at Disney Security who are listening. If you guys need tasers, <laughs> I'll buy them for you.
1: Oh. Okay.
0: <laughs> All right, Jim, uh, another uh, news. Uh, Disney World has canceled uh, hotel reservations through June 13th. Mm -hmm. That just came out a few minutes ago. They went one week beyond what they had had normally done, right, which which was the last one? Mm
1: -hmm. And I think if I recall correctly, they were doing two weeks at a time before, but now they're doing one week at a time. Yeah. It's hard not to read the tea leaves and wonder what we might learn over the next couple of days. Uh, Speaking of which. Speaking of that, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. You climb out on this limb. I'll wave, you know, from the tree. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, So today, uh, Thursday
0: at uh, 2 p.m., Universal, Disney, and SeaWorld are presenting their reopening plans to Orange County. And so that includes the procedures and policies that they're going to put in place for the first phase of reopening of the theme parks. As part of that reopening, they were apparently either encouraged or required to give an opening date, a re, uh, an initial estimated reopening date, to the county, and that was it's on was on the agenda for uh, for Orange County's uh, uh, commissioners yesterday, and then word got out and, and the news started covering it, and apparently sometime between noon when the schedule went out and two p.m., there was a lot of requests from media Mm -hmm. to Disney and Universal and SeaWorld, asking them what that specific date was going to be. And the reason was at two o'clock, we started hearing from CNBC, Mm -hmm. from Disney and from other media that there will not be a public revealing of that initial date at 2 p.m. today, even though it was on the agenda. Mm -hmm. So I did some asking around. They do have an initial date. I have a general idea of what that initial date is now, Hmm. but no one's saying
1: what it is. Do we want to get into the health official that was removed from her job because she was being pressured to adjust the figures for Florida? The problem is that this is still kind of ongoing, And I realize that, you know, the governor just went to lunch yesterday with Mike Pence uh, in Orlando and had a hamburger without wearing masks but, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here is, is—is you know, I mean, for example, the Ford plant just yesterday that announced after it had reopened, it was closing because of, you know, how many people tested for COVID. I want to just underline, circle, and indent here, folks, that probably by the time this thing gets posted, we'll have a date for when the theme parks are supposed to open. But this is a very fluid situation. I worry about people buying plane tickets and making reservations and then things changing. And I just worry that people seem so desperate to get out and back to their normal lives. I just, I want them to be safe. And, you know, I know that Disney wants the parks to be safe as well. So just understand that things may open and things may close. Things may close. Yeah. I do note that, uh, Ah, uh, Shanghai
0: Disneyland mm-hmm. opened its uh, theater attractions this week, so that rollout seems to be going pretty well.
1: Okay, are they following what we'd previously
0: heard? Yeah, the, with the distancing guidelines. Yeah, so every other row, every uh, okay. three, three seats horizontally between uh, groups, things like that. So yeah, but that's good. So um, so it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. We'll uh, we'll see how it works out. Okay. All right, Jim. On to listener questions. We got a ton of stories from folks. Remember last week's uh, show, Mm -hmm. we asked about stories from listeners who had tried to save money on a Disney vacation, Mm -hmm. right? So Jenny uh, writes in and says, on her honeymoon trip in February of 1995, we stayed at the All-Star Resort as we couldn't afford a rental car and we also weren't 25 yet. Oh, I remember that. Yeah. Oh, remember those days? Yeah. Couldn't afford a rental car. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So Jenny writes, we had Pop-Tarts and Capri Sun drink pouches mm. for breakfast. Mm-hmm. And she writes, yes, mm-hmm. untoasted Pop-Tarts. Mm-hmm. Yum. There's <laughs> always the hibachi. <laughs> Jenny, Jenny, why, why did you not bring a hibachi and charcoal? Yeah. Jenny, Jenny. Jenny. <laughs> So she, uh, Jenny says she carried around a single size bag of sun chips, a granola bar, and another Capri Sun in our fanny packs, Mm -hmm. which are now called hip packs, for lunch in the parks. And for dinner each night, they, uh, they enjoyed an all one, all you can eat restaurant. So Cape May, Whispering Canyon. And another one that she can't remember. And they did have one fancy splurge, which, Jim, I know you will enjoy the story of. It's the
1: Empress Room oh, on the Empress Lily. Yeah. Wow. She mentioned the 25 to get a rental car. That was my rude awakening from the first trip down to Orlando. I get off the plane. I board the shuttle. I go over to the rental car place. and But I'm 21 Oh, And it was one of these things where my rental car, you know, the company i set up the vacation package never thought to ask what my age was. And it just sort of like, no, I'm sorry, sir. You need to be 25. And I spent the afternoon on the phone till they finally found me a slightly disreputable <laughs> rental car company that would, all right, you're 21. We'll look the other way. Take your car. <laughs> I've told you the
0: story about me renting at Fox, right? In the offsite place uh, in Orlando. Uh, so Fox, Fox's has the absolute, Fox rental car, mm-hmm. has the absolute lowest rates mm-hmm. in Orlando. Um, there are two downsides to it. One, they're off-site. So you've got to take a shuttle to pick up the car and mm-hmm. a shuttle to get dropped off. And the customer service people who are, the shuttle people are fantastic. Like I, I actually showed up at four o'clock in the morning returning a car one time. Mm-hmm. And the, a shuttle driver just, hap, or a, uh, an employee, happened to be there mm-hmm. when I was dropping it off. And the gate was locked because mm-hmm. who re- returns a rental car at four o'clock? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the morning. And so he let me in. And he's like, do you need a ride to the airport? And I said, yes. So he gave me a ride to the airport in the shuttle van, oh. which was fantastic. Yeah. But here's the funny thing. You show up at Fox mm-hmm. and there's an astounding amount of paperwork that you've got to go through. Mm-hmm. Like they, they want your return boarding pass. They want your driver's license. They want an alternate form of ID. And I'm, I'm 99% sure, Jim, mm-hmm. that they're gathering that information. So when you steal the car, <laughs> The bounty hunters have a head start on finding you. Like I was convinced into it. Look, the only reason you're asking these questions is for Dog the Bounty Hunter to track me down in Alaska,
1: you know, with my with my 2017 Chevy Granada or whatever it is that I've got. I too have rented from Fox, and I, but I always got the sense, given the age of the car I was entering. In fact, at one point, I think I actually rented the car that Fred Flintstone drove. i think it's worth what i'm paying a day for it i mean like the whole car (laughs) look
0: if i put gas in this thing i've doubled the value of the car yeah (laughs) we've all had that yeah this was amazing this was like Mm -hmm. i think it took me a good like half an hour Mm -hmm. to go through the paperwork at fox and i was like i've look i've i've gotten mortgages i've gotten married (laughs) in less time than this it's just a car right so anyway it was their car.
1: It was their rules. It's fine. And just before you're leaving, it's like, now if we could put this tracker crawler on you, sir. You're <laughs> 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 sir, your ankle bracelet? There sir. we go. There we go. <laughs> All right. Speaking of
0: uh, super cheap, Erica writes in and says, we do many of the common things like bringing in our own snacks to the park as well as having groceries delivered and eating breakfast at the hotel. We also prefer to stay somewhere with the kitchen so we can head back to the room once the kids are tired, throw in a frozen pizza, and open a bottle of wine. Erica, you are my kind of person. Uh, One idea we did when our girls were little was to buy Disney merchandise ahead of time. So we picked up a couple of uh, shirts from Target and some Disney stuff at the dollar store. Uh, We'd then have Tinkerbell drop off a surprise for the kids that they would find each morning. That got rid of the need to purchase $30 plush in the park since that day, since uh, Tinkerbell had already brought them a $3 plush in the morning. We're not total curmudgeons, so we did let the kids each pick out whatever they wanted at World of Disney. Obviously, works better with young children, but something to consider. Mm-hmm. Thanks again for your podcast. So that is a good idea. So bringing your own plush. And I've, I've heard a couple of people write in with that same idea.
1: Eric also tells the story that her two-year-old selected the Cinderella castle, which effectively negated any savings. that they <laughs> <laughs> Right, yeah.
0: <laughs> you go to World of Disney, you pick up the most expensive thing, it's... Pretty much break even at that point, but okay.
1: Pretty much brings to mind that scene from The Jerk with Steve Martin. It's like, you can pick anything between the pencil and the eraser. <laughs> you got to have standard boundaries, folks. It's like between the tiny castle and the even smaller castle.
0: And speaking of budgets, mm. our friend Pascal writes uh, in from Canada and says, one point is to bring kids a, or to give kids a budget for souvenirs. So when Pascal went, get, uh, each of their kids had a limit of 50 US dollars for anything they wanted. So plush, lightsabers, books,
1: mm-hmm.
0: whatever. And Pascal writes in that it worked really well and made them realize the cost of things mm-hmm. and made them think about their buying impulses. Mm. Not bad behavior for a nine and seven year old boy. Very good. Yeah. Pascal also wrote in with some uh, tips about getting Walt Disney World tickets with loyalty points mm-hmm. from, uh, I guess, Canada's air miles. Oh. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll look at that for, uh, for Canada. On another topic, Erin from the UK writes in with a tip for those folks who are in the UK who are trying to figure out what to do with travel before June 30th to Walt Disney World. And Andrew says, just thought you might be interested to know that in the UK, whilst officially you can't move or amend bookings made with Disney unless traveling before June 30th, if you ring up them now, they are refunding UK packages. You can delay payment till 35 days before you go, rebook next year, or take a full refund. So good tip there. Yeah, for UK listeners. That's great. Daniel writes in with a request for me, Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really enjoy the podcast and subscribe to Bandcamp. Thank you. And I've really appreciated all of the additional exclusive episodes that have come out since the pandemic started. It's helped with the escapism a lot. So, this may be in part to working as a sort of data related field, but I had a suggestion for a member exclusive Bandcamp episode. I've always been fascinated by Len's work mm-hmm. with touring plans. And I think Len's mentioned before that I've given talks about how we started the company and some of the basics of data collection. But to the best of my knowledge, there hasn't been a podcast about it. I personally would love a discussion about the merits of different efficiency algorithms. And I think a TED Talk format would be really interesting
1: to a broad group of subscribers. I would enjoy that myself. I've heard enough of your behind-the-scenes stories. And in fact, I love how... Often Turing plans had more accurate info than Disney and how you got it. So, yeah, no, no, we should definitely explore this idea. All right. Different efficiency algorithms. Mm-hmm. I will write that one up. That's okay. a good tip. Thanks, D- thanks, Daniel.
0: All right. Uh, our friend James sent in a note and also a link to a video file. And James writes in and says, I managed to stumble upon a rare version of a Fantasia documentary. I asked what was different between this and the 2000 version included on the DVD release and Fantasia and i got a response that said outside of reusing the interviews with Ward Kimball and Mark Davis mm-hmm. and a few pieces of archival footage and following the same general outline they're completely different documentaries so this one is uh, apparently only been released on VHS and laserdisc as part of the 1991 deluxe edition mm-hmm. and james sent in a link to the documentary jim you and i
1: will watch this and we will uh, we'll talk about it on an upcoming show okay just quick side note here what's kind of interesting about The 1990 thing on Fantasia is Disney actually restored Fantasia in 1982 and did something very, very controversial because this was sort of the the launch of the era of digital sound. So they Uh re-recorded all of the music. In fact, they got Erwin Costell, the gentleman who directed, handed the music for Mary Poppins to come in and... Direct an orchestra, uh, you know, and the f- film from nineteen forty, that, that's that's Stakowski. I mean, yeah, literally, you know, that yeah. I mean, don't no disrespect to Erwin Costell, you know. Within the music community, there was this huge uproar. And they're like, but we restored the film, it's digital sound now. It's like, but you have to throw away Stakowski's direction. <laughs> so by the time when they did the restoration for the nineteen ninety theatrical release, Erwin's stuff went back into the vault and they buffed up uh the original soundtrack this. Stakowski had directed, so they have the the original analog recordings that Leopold Stakowski did. Yep. Mm-hmm in the 40s. And then they digitized that. They went back and I guess, I remember this was the early, early days of, of stereo. In fact, that whole thing about the Fanta sound system. So when they did it for 82, it's like, it's digital. It's such more, it's so much more crisp, but it's like, but again, it's not Leopold Stokowski. So. Right. Okay. Always felt bad for Mr. Costell. Yeah. I, but
0: you kind of understand how people want the original Leopold Stokowski version, right? It's, his interpretation of them.
1: I think it reminds me of that woman who <laughs> restored the, the, the painting. I
0: was thinking <laughs> the exact same story.
1: <laughs> the picture of Jesus. Yeah. Look, I did my best. <laughs>
0: well, yeah. So. I was thinking the exact same thing in my head, Jim. Okay, okay. <laughs> Look, I tried. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, A for effort. Yeah. But we're going to go back with the original yeah. thing, Dis- I think. Yeah. No disrespect. All right, Jim, remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had talked about a set of videos. One of them was a day at the Magic Kingdom. Another one was a day at Epcot, right? Mm -hmm. And they were on YouTube. And Jim from Michigan writes in and uh, and says that he watched the videos. And while he was watching it, he noticed at the 15 minute and 14 second mark, Mm -hmm. it shows what looks like a parking tram pulling up to the International Gateway. Jim writes in and says, I'm assuming this is why there was always a concrete island when you walked to International Gateway. From the beach club where the Skyliner
1: is now. And his question is, where did that tram come from and where did it go? The very first super giant convention complex that got built after Eisner Wells came through the door was actually down at the Dolphin and the Swan. And so okay. if you walked out the back door and you had a giant convention going on. They would basically run this tram continuously from the convention center so that, you know, somebody who was attending the event, and if they wanted to go over and grab lunch or do a little shopping in Epcot, you know, it's like, absolutely, sir, you know, let's take you right over there. Over time, as other convention facilities were built around property, this became kind of a sticking point. It's like, and the friendship boats, you know, they began to direct people to the effect of, look, it's right over there. Get on the boat. I think one of the other issues that really came into play here is people who were walking over from either the boardwalk or yacht and beach <laughs> kind of resented stepping out of the way for the tram. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm paying top dollar for this hotel. Please don't run me down. <laughs> Trying to kill the guests while they're on the way into the park. <laughs> it's right there in the book, then. Don't do that next to no hapa. Don't. <laughs> All
0: right, Jim, one last thing before we uh, take a quick break. Uh, this came in from my daughter Hannah mm-hmm. and listeners. I am going to need you to grab a pencil and a piece of paper because it's a writing exercise. So I'll give you guys a second to grab that pencil and a piece of paper, and then we will begin. All right, Hmm. here we go. All right, I'm going to have you write down three words. The first word I want you to write down is ocean. And I want you to underline the sh sound in ocean. So the letters C-E. And the next word I want you to write down, Jim, you should do this too, Mm -hmm. is about. And I want you to underline the ow sound in about. Mm -hmm. So the O and the U. Okay. And the third word that I want you to write down is colonel, like in Colonel Sanders, Mm -hmm. Mm C-O-L-O-N-E-L. And I want you to write out the er sound. Okay. And kernel. So if you put those together, you get C-E-O-U-O-L-O. But if you sound them out, it's shower. So that's how I'm going to start spelling the word shower from now on. C-E-O-U-O-L-O. Because phonetically, that's what it is. English is a strange language. Have you ever heard the story, Jim, that English is actually three languages dressed up in, a, uh, in an overcoat
1: standing on each other's shoulders? <laughs> like, English isn't one language. It's three languages together. Uh, no, but now I, I, I will live with that visual. I love that. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Remind me to tell you about why uh, the plural of
0: goose is geese. But the plural of moose is not meese. Okay, can't wait for this next thing. week's show. Next week's next show, week's show. Okay. We'll do it. we're going to take a, a quick break while we ponder that, and when we come back. Jim is going to tell us about blast to the past at Disneyland in 1988. I was watching some vintage 1980s commercials, and I came across a Disneyland event called Blast to the Past, which featured a 1950s parade and beach show called The Main Street Hop, with dancers spinning hula hoops and wearing 3D glasses. Also, there was a contest that gave away classic 1950s cars. There was even a 1989 TV special that documented the whole thing. And I understand that 1950s nostalgia was big in the 1980s because there were movies like Back to the Future, Stand By Me, and the one, and TV shows like The Wonder Years. But I'm still wondering how all of this came about at Disneyland. Was this one of Michael Eisner's crazy ideas? Did anyone actually win vintage cars? Any stories or insight would be most appreciated. So James, thank you very much for the email. And Jim, coincidentally, I was watching the Imagineering story last night on Disney Plus, yep. And they actually did a
1: minute on this during the Michael Eisner episode. There's actually a reason for that. The imaginaries, especially on the success of Blast from the Past, really got enamored of the 1950s period for a time. There was mm-hmm. this interesting argument in-house, especially in the 1980s, because remember, Euro Disney is in development and you know they're they're looking at the China parks at this point. The argument is when Walt initially designed Disneyland in the mid-1950s, to have a section of the park that looked back at the turn of the century made sense. This was the era that the folks who were living in the 1950s were most nostalgic about. But now you jump ahead 30 years and Mm -hmm. the baby boomers are not nostalgic for the turn of the century. They find this part of the park quaint. But they don't necessarily connect with it. But on the other hand, when Disneyland staged the Blast of the Past, uh, the initial logo for from Blast to the Past literally was in fifties in type typography. Uh, Blast to the Past. But it then showed a rocket sort of swirling around the logo. That's for the 1988 version of Blast to the Past. In 1989, uh, 1989 the, the second and last year that they did it, they modified that to a classic 50s car with big fins. But Disneyland wanted to do something significant so to advertise that they were doing Blast to the Past. So, what you remember how you go to the Hard Rock Cafe and there'd be a Cadillac sticking out of the side of the building? Yep. So what Disneyland proposed, and you'll see in the art there, is that what they wanted to do was mock up that a rocket, you know, in a fifty style, sleek fifty style rocket with big fins had crashed into the side of the Matterhorn. Right. This is like a uh, Buck Rogers. Yeah style with the weird fins. And yeah, so. Had, it, yeah, you know, crashed into the matter. So block. picture okay. that you're driving down, <laughs> down the five and you look over and it's like, okay, that's different. Oh, they were actually going to do it. It wasn't just a logo. They were actually going to try and, and put it in there. Yeah, well, again, they, they, the idea was it was going to be an inflatable piece with half of the rocket, oh, okay. you know, on one side inflated and half of the rocket on the other side. And In the end, okay. what they opted to do was spend the money on things that guests could really enjoy. And among these things were like, Thirty-foot tall jukeboxes that they'd roll out onto Main Street, and they do this amazing, you know, thing called the Main Street Hop. In fact, it was the very first street party that Disney had done to the parks. Previously, they'd done classic parades, but the notion that you could turn. Main Street into a stage oh, okay. the imaginers would come out to the park and they'd see Main Street with classic 50 cars in fact there's the other image there of they have a guy in the black leather jacket with the greased back hair but you know you can see Carnation Gardens you know right behind him there I mean he uh, yeah it's uh it's three guys in leather jackets and
0: uh, and jeans uh, they've got the pompadour sort of hair
1: mm-hmm. uh, they're looking really tough except one of them has a yo-yo. <laughs> Well, you know, it's Disneyland. Len. You know that. It's, yes, it's, you know to have the stiletto probably wouldn't have worked. But yeah, but oddly enough, again, if if you're fascinated with blast of the past, you can go to eBay now, and a lot of the giveaways where it's paddle balls or, or fuzzy dice. Did they really? Yeah, you know, and in fact, speaking of giveaways, when you arrived at the park. Out front, there were five classic 50s cars parked. And the thing is that as you enter the park, you have the opportunity to enter a trivia contest. And at the end of this – well, it ran – it was supposed to run the first year from mid-March to mid-May, but it was so popular they actually extended into June. But at the end of the run of a blast of the past, they actually gave away these cars. You know, the Imagineers just stood there and watched how people just gravitated to these cars or, or the the cast members who were dressed in classic poodle skirts or that sort of thing. And they saw this was really resonating with them. And at the same time, you got to remember, they're going back to Imagineering and they're working on – the entrance retail corridor for Euro Disneyland. And, you know, first of all, they use this argument to the effect of like, we cannot do in Paris, we can't do turn-of-the-century America. You know, we have to do something that works for them. And, you know, for example, the French love jazz, so why don't we move this forward to the jazz age? Why don't we make it 1920s? And so they create this, this take on it where it's bootleggers and flappers and what ends up happening is in the summer of 1987, the Brian De Palma version of The Untouchables comes out, which features that scene where Robert De Niro as Al Capone beats a gangster to death with a baseball bat. I don't remember that one. Okay. Well, well Michael Eisner did. <laughs> and It was one of the things that came back to the office and maybe bootleggers aren't quite as cute and cuddly as I remember. And he actually forced them to revert to the turn of the century. So we now jump ahead to to Hong Kong and same thing. They know that this park internationally, a lot of American iconography that's used for the classic Disneyland, just isn't going to work in this park. And I mean, for example, the Old West, which that's why this park doesn't have a frontier land. It has sort of a supersized adventure land. And instead of a Rivers of America with a Tom Sawyer's Island. They have a manga version of the Jungle Cruise. And in the, the middle of that river is Tarzan, uh, Tarzan oh. Island. But anyway, well, what they talked about, they went to Eisner and said, look, here are the two possibilities. One is we saw it work at Disneyland. Eisner himself, when the folks of marketing and entertainment at Disneyland went to him and said, okay, so we've done State Fair, we've done Circus Fantasy. These were all what the park called primary events. They were introduced in uh, 1986 after Disneyland, after Thirty some odd decades of always being closed on Mondays and Tuesdays, right? So that was that was also in the um, in the imaginary story. Yeah, that's it exactly. And it was just one of these things where now it's gone to a seven day a week schedule. You have a generation, uh, actually two generations of Southern Californians who have been taught that Disneyland is closed on Mondays and Tuesdays, Tuesdays. in the right. late winter, then the the chunk of spring up until summer, and then finally the fall. You know, the, the only times that Disneyland was open seven days a week, school vacation, summer, and the two weeks around the holidays. So when Disneyland decided it would go to a seven-day-a-week schedule uh, in 1985, it's like, okay, we have to create these events that will get, you sort of rewire Southern Californians that will make them think, okay, I should be going to Disneyland now because this is a cool event. And so the circus one they presented right after Christmas, and the state fair one, obviously, the harvest season was done in the fall. So they're looking at this chunk of time between March and June. And it's like, okay, what do we do there? And they go to Eisner and say, okay, we have this nostalgia themed event. We're thinking that what we'll do is we'll create something where one area of the park will be the 1920s, and another area will be the 30s, the 40s, and we'll go right to the 1960s. By the way, we're eventually going to build hotels with this theme, so <laughs> it's a good test. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the funniest part. But Michael Eisner, when he was over at Paramount, he started in television. And in the early 1970s, when Gary Marshall was getting a Happy Days up under the ground, and it had a really shaky first season, Michael Eisner was a huge champion of the show. Key made ABC stick with it till they arrived, as with Fonzie, as the, the central character, and the, the show just took off at that point. And then six years later, Michael's in charge of Paramount uh, Studios, the, the movie side of the house. When. They do a movie version of the Broadway musical Grease, and right. they made that for six million dollars, and it sold three hundred and seventy-eight million worth of tickets worldwide. It was this hit you could see from oh, space, yeah. and so you know, Eisner in the middle of the meeting is like, "Lose the twenties, lose the thirties, lose the forties, and drop the sixties, 50s. That's exactly where you want to focus this event.
0: Which is weird because this is ten years later. So yeah, yeah. So you think that it'd be it would be the sixties because the people who
1: enjoyed the 50s and the 70s, they're not 10 years older. No, that was the thing that, that initially concerned the folks at Disneyland. It's like Happy Days went off the air in 1984. Grease 2 had come out in 91 and... And again, it was the exact opposite of what had happened with the original Grease. Uh, that they was it, Michelle Pfeiffer. Interested? Yeah, and she's to this day incredibly proud of that film. It was kind of her her Hollywood debut, so to speak. But that cost eleven That's million awesome. dollars to make, and only sold fifteen million dollars worth of tickets. So I don't even think Michelle's mother went to go see it. <laughs> That's fine. As long as she enjoyed making it. That's what it is. Well, anyway, Eisner knew the power of the 1950s, how people would connect with this stuff. But, you know, so here were the imaginaries proposing the entrance retail corridor for Hong Kong. And they're like, look, we, see, you saw it. You were there too. You saw what happened when we did a 50s era set Main Street you know, it's the old Walt Disney story to the effect of it. it's hard to choose between one. Yeah. So they showed him another idea, which was basically Disney centric architecture. The idea was that you had a main street where as you walk down it's like, okay, that's the mansion that Pollyanna lived in with her strict aunt, which is right next door to the darling's house from Peter Pan, which is right next door to the house that the banks lived in Mary Poppins. And across the street is the flat that Roger and Nita lived in and. 101 Dalmatians, and but again, you got to remember this is Michael Eisner in the era where he's obsessed, especially after what happened with Euro Disney about containing costs, and so he's like, "Look, let's just go with the main street we know that worked at Disneyland." So it's effectively a clone. Though to give Bob Iger credit, when it came time to build Shanghai, and remember the whole conceit of uh, you know it's it's authentically Disney but distinctly Chinese. And he got that turn of the century America is not going to connect with the Chinese mainland. More to the fact, given that the Chinese government really doesn't want flag-waving American stuff in this park, probably a 1950s greaser thing isn't going to work either. So that's – they actually devolved to the Disney architecture idea – only they went with the far-tunier version. You know from from looking at that chunk of the Imagineering documentary that this was a ridiculously wonderful, colorful idea, and it was the most successful thing that they did. I mean, don't get me wrong, State Fair and Circus Disney, or excuse me, Circus Fantasy, Mm -hmm. they all did great, but Blast of the Past was the, the complete smash out of the park, and yet... They present the last version of it in 1989, and then all of this stuff goes away, Lynn. Starting in 1990, hmm. just Disney puts these primary events in the rearview mirror, which is weird because if you look at Epcon and you look at Flower and Garden and Food and Wine and Yeah, it's all events all the time. Yeah, and it's like, so what happened here? January 14th, 1990, Michael Eisner steps up to the podium and begins talking about the Disney Decade. Right. Yeah. And so how there's going to be a brand new park and, you know, the parking lot. And there's going to be a hotel that cozies upright against it. Multiple hotels. There's a couple of wonderful YouTube videos of the Main Street Hop. And likewise, for year two, they actually created a 50s-themed parade that rolled through the park. And mm. it was such a good fit for the park. Because Disneyland was built in the 1950s and to celebrate the 50s inside of Disneyland, it just felt right. And there is a part of me that hopes, you know, in much the same way that you can go to this day to to Disney's Hollywood Studios and walk up Hollywood Boulevard there and be in Hollywood of the 30s and the 40s. I, I hope someday we get a, a Disney theme park that actually goes back and does this, that does the 50s theme. because. Folks who went into the Carnation Gardens, for example, that had been totally, you know, redone with new costumes for the cast members, and they did things like hold a jukebox in and redid the menu. I mean, people t- to this day still talk about the Main Street Hop and Blast to the Past. Like, I really wish they'd do that again. Huh. And we haven't even talked about things like when Chubby Checker came and they broke the record for the most number. It was 2,248 people crammed into Disneyland in a morningland to beat the world twisted one place record. And, and that came on the heels of the previous year where for the very first blast to the past, they had over 1,500 people come in. To do the most people who'd ever hula hoop together, <laughs> the group hula hooping world record. Yes, you know, it's which it's sadly in 2011, folks in Taipei City, Taiwan, took the record away. Likewise, I, I want to say the twist record was was taken by a group in 2014 that out of Pearl, Mississippi. Well, so it's, it's still in America, Jim, just not in Disneyland. Well, there the you go, <laughs> USA, USA. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's when America had ambition, Jim, when they were setting world hula hoop records. There you
1: go. There you go. <laughs> you know, that's fan. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah. I, you know, all right. So I uh, I wanted to ask you one more question. Mm-hmm. When we we're when I was watching the Imagineering story uh yesterday, and it talked about how Michael Eisner came from Paramount mm-hmm. and and Frank Wells, who was Michael Eisner's right-hand guy, yep. did he come from Warner? He did. He did. Okay, so here's my question. Did Eisner. Bring Wells or did the board pick two different
1: people from two different organizations to come in? Michael Eisner, he had people like Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Jim Henson calling the Disney board saying, hey, I've worked with Michael Eisner. I believe strongly in this guy. But he was young. And you know the notion was that he was stepping from television to film production to suddenly it was the Disney company, which was theme parks and consumer products and, and that sort of thing. And so the notion was by bringing Frank Wells in, who was somewhat older, we're looking for that kind of Walt Roy dynamic. There's a famous story about when they brought Frank Wells in, I mean, he had already been the CEO over at Warner's. And so when they came through the door and it's like, okay, so you're pairing me with Michael Eisner. And it's like, well, I, I'm the senior guy. I've had more experience. So I'll, I'll have the top role. And Eisner at that moment said, no, I have to be CEO or I'm not taking this job. And it's like the deal literally could have fallen apart at that moment. And Frank Wells was a, a strong enough, you know, guy with enough experience and realized that Michael particularly had just been treated rather badly by Barry Diller over at Paramount. And so he, mm-hmm. he was in a, a headspace where I need to be in charge. And and Frank knew that, you know, once they started running the corporation, you know, Michael was going to be the crazy creative. Frank was actually going to be the guy running the company. It's like, okay, fine. What job title do you want? You, you want CEO? Fine. I'll be president. But knowing full well, I'll still be running the place. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's enough work for everyone. I like to, yeah. I like to tell everyone. And, uh, and, and in fact, yeah. that's the thing. He was such... You know, he was so skilled at sort of guiding Michael away from, that's eh, a very interesting idea. Let's go over here. <laughs> they, they they actually say that a couple of times in the uh, in the imaginary story. And again, I, I'm just going through it now, but I think it's a fantastic series. Leslie Iwerks did yeah. just an absolutely stunning job. But it just, that's the, the thing of when we lost Frank in 94. For Michael, he lost his governor, the guy who would steer yeah. him away from bad ideas. And the next 10 years were not fun. Yeah. So we'll, uh, we're, that's the next
0: episode. We're going to watch it tonight. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, but really well done. Folks, if you haven't uh, watched it yet, uh, The Imaginary Story on Disney+, Plus uh, definitely worth your time. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's regular show, hopefully we'll know more about the theme park's reopening plans and Jim talks about the history of the Millennium Celebration and especially the Mickey Arm Wand over at Epcot. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me at touringplans.com. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who's just planted 40 acres of flowers in the shape of a lumberjack drinking espresso for the annual Dahlia Festival, August 29th to the 31st, starting at 10 a.m. in beautiful downtown Canby, Oregon. While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.